Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. The person here on uh, Zeitgeist with Zach Geist is definitely not a stranger. Um, I'm interviewing today Michael Kundik, who runs too many things for me to remember, even though I know him so deeply. And uh, welcome, Michael. I am so glad to be here, Zach. I think this is a long time coming. It's really cool. And uh, those of you that know me personally know how wild it is that I'm sitting in a sound booth. Normally, I just talk to people with no microphone, even when there's hundreds of people in a room, because I, I don't know, have a hard time with speaking into a microphone about something. I feel like it almost affects what I'm saying, so I'll try not to, I'm just distracted by it, really. Um, so, Michael, tell us, what is it that you do here in Salt Lake City and in the world? Oh, Zach, you know that comes in a lot of different flavors and packages, but I would say I'm very passionate about this idea of a more beautiful world or a more compelling mythos for humanity to live by, um, being a conscious change agent. I mean, since the 60s, there's been a thousand different ways to say this, but I'm very interested in seeing humanity uh, evolve and do some really uh, beautiful things, uh, more in alignment with our higher selves and with nature around us and all the things that I think you stand for as well. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like I live in a pretty big bubble most of the time. Uh, Facebook is the only thing I see that shows me that I'm not really actually living in a totality of beauty. You know, sometimes on Facebook they will bring in, or the algorithms, I mean, the pro algorithms are programmed by somebody, bring in things that are really shocking that will get you to stop and click and look and Essentially, it's flash grenade after flash grenade just kind of exploding in this little this little thing in your hand. And it might not sound like a big deal to people like, oh, come on, you know, toughen up. It's just a, just a thing on your phone, you know, but our bodies react as though it's happening. I mean, we have mirror neurons to the degree that we haven't fried them out. And I think a lot of people that lose the sensitivity lose those mirror neurons and they lose that intelligence. I mean, sensitivity is a form of intelligence, or you could go as far as to say that intelligence only happens through your ability to be sensitive, your organism to be able to be sensitive to the environment that it inhabits. And the environment that it inhabits is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's your thoughts, it's your emotions, it's your feelings, it's your digestion, it's your body aches, it's the weather, it's those people that are in the room. And I think that in our community here in Salt Lake City, we're speaking to a lot of people that are very empathic and that you know, what's going on inside of their body is oftentimes turbulent because it's responding to past trauma and then also to a very incoherent surrounding cacophony of pain. I don't know if uh, you want to speak to what is it, what it is that mm. you're doing in, in uh, Salt Lake City and what it is that you believe you're bringing that's beautiful as an alternative to a lot of what is painful in Salt Lake. And for those of, before I even have you chime in with that, for those that don't know Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City and Utah in particular, it has a lot of uh, records for things. I mean, it's the most homogenous religious uh, state in the nation. Um, it has the worst air quality of anywhere in the United States. Um, yes, worse than L.A. 
uh, because it's an inversion. Uh, it also has the highest prescription drug use, highest opiate addiction, highest pornography use, um, and uh, we're the second most polluted state, I think, behind Nevada. So there's, you know, a lot of, there's a big background of what we want less of in order to be able to create something very beautiful in front of it. It stands out as even that much more beautiful. So kind of like I use oftentimes with Michael the idea that Frodo has to take the ring to Mordor. And whenever I'm flying back into Salt Lake City in the winter, when that inversion happens, I feel like I'm flying into Mordor and I actually taken pictures of what Mordor looks like <laughs> in Lord of the Rings from the movie Return of the King and then what Salt Lake City looks like. And it actually looks more polluted in Salt Lake City. So with all that said, what are you doing to help beautify or beautiful Utah? Oh, I really do love uh, being able to organize in Utah specifically for not only the reasons you said, where there's a lot of low-hanging uh, fruit or solutions that need to be acted on, but it's also, a, you know, a lot of people call it Small Lake City, too. You end up finding, you know, at least one or two relationships away. A lot of, most people know each other, especially in the spheres that are, you know, if you're involved in the local community, if you're a local business owner, if you're in the nonprofit scene, if you go to ecstatic dance, if you're vegan, if you go to shows like all these things start to play together and like we kind of all know each other and so I love the fact that you know big changes could happen really quickly here in Utah and it could have global ripple effects um, you know we had the Olymp Olympics here we had the UN just recently like this is a, a global hub as well as a small tight-knit community with a a deep history of resiliency and stewardship and this like care for one another um, and, and, and kind of a desire for sovereignty as well is very embedded in this culture, uh, not just in the indigenous people whose land, um, you know, we find ourselves on, but also in the Mormon culture that's dominant today. There's this very recent history of a lot of food storage and gardens and, and you mean you don't have to store other. the food that's dead inside of a plastic container in your basement. You could actually store it in a living greenhouse in the winter as well as in a garden outside where it's growing and part people can participate in growing it. Well, let's talk growing food. Let's talk food yeah. sovereignty. Yeah, why, and why don't people do that more often? Why don't they do that more often? Well, I think you, um, of all people that I'm talking to, you see um, the, the soul of capitalism most acutely. And I, I, I think that um, if, if we saw the true cost of food and we really brought ourselves back into relationship with the land around us, how food is produced, how we consume it, how we get it, the whole process is uh, extremely enlightening when you take the time to, to track it. Um, and when capitalism, I think, as you know, and you probably even speak to it better than me, um, really uh, sh hides the true cost of things. Um, you know, the, the transportation of the food, the way it's produced, it is so fossil fuel heavy and subsidy heavy that we find ourselves happy to go get the, you know, the, the 60 cent, uh, you know, bag of chips as opposed to the tomatoes that we grow in our backyard or, or the networks that we have. And so, you know, the, the Utah Permaculture Collective, which is uh, I'm current chairperson of that, it's a three-year organization in the what making. What is permaculture? Permaculture is this idea of combining the words permanent and culture and making um, an actual uh, design science and an effort, a community effort to instill permanent culture for 
humanity. And so permanent, that which sustains culture, that which supports life, um, we need to find ourselves in service to life and find the things that it takes to support uh, life. And and really, no matter how much you talk about the specific things of growing food or, or our own fiber shed, growing our own clothes, I mean, there's so many things that come into being alive, but at the core of the culture is what I'm most concerned about. Because if we prioritize these things, if we saw ourselves as interwoven in the grand scheme of life and the universe in general, we would honor all the processes that give us life. But somehow that's been short-circuited. I don't I don't know um, how, why um, something so obviously out of touch with the natural world would have come into dominance. If still, I think you've read more books than I have about why we would get to that point. But like, yeah. it's shocking to me. Like, I look out at the world and I wonder how could we possibly have gotten to this point when individualism? Mm-hmm. It's the idea of the the separate individual with their own separate needs that is, you know, separate from everybody else and competing for its survival in a world red in tooth and claw hanging on a rock that's dead floating around space you know trying to you know take out as much pleasure as one can before the light gets blown out at the end of life and i think that that's some somewhere this living story came into somebody's mind and maybe it was so frightening i don't know it's like Things that are frightening are easy to remember and easy to recollect. Like, do you remember your best dream or your worst nightmare better? Worst nightmare. And and when you wake up in the morning, you tend to remember nightmares more than dreams. And it's so much, so easy to perpetuate the nightmare. And I'm not saying that we spiritually bypass and just ignore everything that's wrong. I mean, it deserves attention too. And it deserves a dialogue with. And I've learned a lot from trying to try on the beingness to the greatest degree that I can of somebody. Like I will listen to somebody's podcast or somebody, I'd read somebody's book. I mean, some of the books I can't finish. Um, Jordan Peterson comes to mind. I know I'm going to probably, if people ever start listening to this, they'll just stop listening to me. Oh, he doesn't like Jordan Peterson. And it's not the case. There's a lot of truth to what Jordan Peterson says, but there are some ways of his state of being that like when I try to inhabit it, I feel like almost suicidally depressed and I look at everything as an enemy and I try to like, how do I be the strongest one and be the most hierarchical, you know, king lobster, you know, and, uh, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this feels like shit, you know, and uh, I'm like, how the hell does he do it? And I just found out recently that he's in uh, rehab for opiate addiction for pain pills. And uh, I say that sensitively because I go, oh, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense to me now because I used to live a life where I had to take some level of opiates, which I found out due to dental work, I took, had to, had to have dental work done. And I was like, oh my gosh, whatever these pills are, like limitless pills for me, like I could actually function. And uh, as Krishnamurti says, the really famous, uh, famous uh, Indian sage has a quote that's also maybe equally or more famous than him even. It says, it, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. And I think that's what you're saying is that right now we live in a society and a culture that is not permanent. If this culture stays perpetuating the way that it is perpetuating, there's fears of uh, ecological destruction. There's fear of whatever climate change means, uh, whether that means it's getting colder, getting hotter, or gyrations, or floods, or you know, uh, uh, vast deserts coming coming into being. Uh, the the huge insect biomass die off. Something like eighty percent right. of all insects in the last like thirty or forty years. 
I mean, I could be off on the numbers of years and number percentage of insects, but please don't just discard everything I say based on being slightly off on the numbers. And I think that's the that's the culture we're in right now is that people are so focused on the numbers. You know, oh, he said 38% sure. instead of 39%. Therefore, everything he said about opiates is also wrong, you know? And uh, and I and I ask that just people use that sensitivity. And I don't even, I don't blame anybody. Like, I think that they lack the sensitivity to feel what's in our hearts or what what's in the spirit of what we're trying to say and to really listen into that because somebody could be spewing the most accurate numbers and statistics and just their heart can be in the wrong place and you can feel it if your sensitivity is there. So essentially, if you feel kind of alone and by yourself and disconnected and like you have to fight to keep what you have and fight to get ahead, I would ask yourself, why in the heck did we get brought in the world to fight with our fellow brothers and sisters? And where does this lead mm. if that's just all we have to look forward to? Yeah. So um, I think that the experiment of whatever the dominant story is in our culture has failed. Um, and if it's perpetuated that the outcomes of the ecological destruction and perhaps us along with it is very um, is very tangible for those that are listening. I think from any measure of health that you put on modern society, there is a deep need for profound change. And so, you know, where are some of the actual um boots on the ground where are the actual like physical grounding points for where if you're if you're engaged if you're feeling the same story that it seems you and I feel very uh, called to and I think many in our community are called to if you're hearing that I don't know cry of the earth or, or cry of consciousness it's saying there's something better for us there's this more beautiful world coming like what's a cry of the earth Oh, cry of the earth. Okay, so I'm a little bit of anthropomorphizing here or, or kind of pulling into that um, you know spiritual side of the work that we do. But I think, frankly, um, we are um, all part of this cosmic web that is being alive, being human, being connected to all of life, which is, you know, in the older story, it seems as though humans are um, put on this pedestal of dominance, right? Where every resource the world uh, provides is something that we can take and exploit. And it's meant survival to, to of be, the fittest. We're right. the king of the jungle because we have technology and we're able to keep together in time. And communicate using language and basically doesn't matter if we're weaker physically, we can coordinate, which is the story that, uh, uh, what is his name? Noel Yuval Harari talks about in Sapiens, that he believes that the reason that Homo sapiens had wiped out all the other homogeneous species is their ability to keep together in time using, essentially there's even a book called Keeping Together in Time and Dance and Drill, which means that once people can connect in time, they can use technologies of, uh, what word am I looking for? They could divide up labor, coordinate and orchestrate through time, meet places. And uh, a lot of this happens as well with ecstatic dance where suddenly out of nowhere, um, some type of pattern or some type of movement or anticipations of movement by an entire room full of hundreds of people will start to synchronize in a way that's never been auditioned kind of like a starling of birds just mm. they all together feel one another and i feel like in our small groups this this synchronicity is that is that the word i'm looking for this harmonizing this mm. equilibrium is beginning the song to happen. of the earth the song <laughs> of the earth yeah the song of the earth it, it, it's 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 maybe going from a cry 
into a song. Mm. So what what blows my mind and where I, I hope to perhaps shift the conversation is a little bit is that we um, and I think I think we both acknowledge that this this cry this song is is present in culture. There's um, a, a deep desire from a growing uh, group of people that want to see a more beautiful world happen. And I think that we What's actually are, them? you know. Good question. I think partially um, that the forces that uh, generally drive the flow of existence, uh, society in particular, are, are are all geared to have God money attached to it, right? And so yeah. when you want to start a, a community garden, there's not this systemic uh, subsidy supported by a collective of, of people that are just there to say, oh, great, you know, here's the local garden because we all eat food. And of course, there's a system for gardening and distributing food. And yet somehow uh, gardeners are not in that position. We're all kind of uh, uh, put into this this place because there's no economic incentive based on the power structures that be, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But what I'm getting at here is that we are... It actually um, makes complete sense. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, it makes complete sense. And it makes sense with the way that money accumulation functions in, in capitalism and the way that money comes into existence as debt and that it needs to be paid back with interest. And in order to do that, it puts people in competition with one another and for never enough and uh, the challenge that we run into and what I found is that the more sensitive somebody is to the actions that they're taking, the more difficult it is for them to justify doing the activities that produce and reap the greatest reward. Now, there are exceptions to that, and I don't want to ignore that. I mean, there is occasionally the person that plays beautiful music and is able to play a Stradivarius violin and charge $60,000 an hour. You know, that does happen. But it's a one-off. Uh, the The norm is, if you're not willing to help convert the world into money, then you're likely going to have a relatively difficult time earning a reasonable livelihood, at least under 1950 and 1960s conditions of the whole American dream of owning your own property, being able to have one of one of the spouses be able to spend time actually raising the children because that's an important part of family dynamic as opposed to everything, including the raising of children, being converted into that monetary realm, which is currently happening. What I find is that, at least in our community, if you were to free up the time, I don't believe that the devil would make work for idle hands. I believe that if people's time was more freed up that they and they had you know, some help with how to come together and how to put that to good, to good use, to constructive, beautiful use where they're able to share their gifts. Does it have to be that they're, you know, a violin player and they're playing the violin 40 hours a week? No, that that's even still part of this old story of, you know, I've got to find this one thing I'm really good at and specialize, and that's all I do. I dream of a time where people have as much or even more wisdom than, you know, in Greek antiquity, where you had somebody that was a philosopher, you know, a doctor, a writer, you know, a mentor, an elder, a, a grandfather, a sailor, you know, and all of these new awesome technologies that we have too, using these technologies to create the, uh, the most beautiful world imaginable. You and I were just talking about this on the way. We were driving by a movie theater and I was talking about surveillance capitalism and essentially some of the implications that this points to. Essentially, even the human capital, meaning what it means to be human beings, has moved into the monetized realm, which our behaviors are sold 
as predictive patterns to the highest bidder. This is what Facebook, Google, I mean, I the, the irony is not escaping me that I'm on a podcast that's probably going to be on YouTube, which was bought out by Google. And there's a reason they paid so much for it, for a company that had a whole bunch of copyright infringements. But this is a whole nother, I don't want to go too deep into that. What I do want to go into is something that we could all relate on without that whole history or backstory, because I don't think that's important for everyone to understand right this second, is that we were driving by a movie theater and you pointed out and you said, this movie is telling a story both visually and with sound, you know, to elicit some form of emotion that's different from how they feel. That's why someone is going to the movie to feel differently than how they feel and to kind of escape their world that they're living in and go into this other world. And a lot of times it takes a lot to escape that. I mean, it's like I, I watch some movies now and I'm like, what the heck is going on? Am I, is there something wrong with my brain? Like, I don't understand even how these, you know, it's like a lot of banter and witty remarks that just kind of aren't connected to anything. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, this is between people that have deep, supposedly are married or have deep relationships. And I'm like, I don't really understand what the heck's going on. And there's some action. And then someone makes a cameo appearance and it's just extreme. And I thought, and you and I were talking about what if we could use these unimaginably beautiful tools and these tools for behavioral predictions in order to predict what are the weather patterns, how to grow the best amount of, how to grow the, the most amount of food, what buildings are not being used and how can we give these buildings, uh, build something beautiful out of them? And how do we put homeless people to work to like feel like they're contributing to the world? Like how do we take this person that has opiate addictions and find out why are they not able to function? And you know, why do they have to take opiates to function? Why are these people not being able to sleep and insomnia? because they're having nightmares like like mm -hmm. how do we turn all of the attention over to life over to healing and have these movies be written by like scores of storytellers mm. that are weaving this this movie into a mosaic of what is possible and everybody comes out of the movies going like how do we put this to work all of these beautiful things that these storytellers are bringing to life and then there's practical elements where people can come together and share their tools and share their resources and not worry that if hey if i share with you this proprietary amazing beautiful thing that i do that like you're going to run over and try to use that to like take away my livelihood and then I'm struggling. But when those gifts are uh, put in service to life, there's a mutual benefit that occurs, right? And I think that kind of hits it on the head. The core of like what uh, we need to see in the world is this capturing of the most incredible gifts that humanity has to offer and putting them in service to life. And a lot of that, this, this shift between paradigms is such an important space to navigate. And I think providing as many opportunities as possible for communities and also to take advantage of this period of time where we have this global interconnectedness. I know some people talk about like, you know, the, the, the morality of humans, or the ethics of humans haven't risen to the same level of the tools and the technologies and the, and the global interconnectedness that we have uh, provided us right now. But I've got to tell you, Zach, from finding a, a, a priority in my own health and my desire to heal, to eat good food, to be on good sleep schedules, to be engaged in, in farming and gardening and dancing with the community and even right livelihood. I mean, getting to work with you with a student loan tutor and be able to manage the consultations for that and help watch as people's lives are dramatically changed from feeding this paradigm of, yes, I got to pay 500,000, 2000 a month towards this, this thing. In fact, there's actually laws that allow me to not do that. And then all of a sudden their story opens wide up. More of their gifts are able to be uh, put towards the things that make the world more beautiful. And I've found in my own capacity, my own potential as a human, 
I'm at least 10 times more effective, passionate, engaged, grounded by doing this kind of work than I was before I was turned on to farming and permaculture and community building and, and this kind of activism. And I feel like even though the transition from what we have now, like for a river to start flowing a different direction takes a massive uh, event, right? Like an earthquake has mm -hmm. to happen or boulders have to fall from the cliffs to like, it's going to be... Um, we have to be very present with whatever it takes for this river to shift in a different direction. But if we recognize that inside the majority of people, there's this like 10 times capacity of gifts and brilliance and engagement and inspiration that occurs when we shift that flow of the river, then there would really be nothing to worry about because we would be present, bringing our gifts, bringing that flow towards this more beautiful vision, this more interconnected uh, vision that's emerging. I think that's that's what calls my soul. And I feel that's why that we end up doing so much together in these community spaces is to shift that river and capture the abundance that comes with that reprioritization of what actually brings wealth and abundance and value. Yeah, amen. <laughs> so I guess I guess I often feel a lot like how you must have felt when writing the song Preaching to the Choir and that I often find it a lot easier to speak with people that already are kind of on the same page with me in a lot of ways and you know they want more beautiful agriculture they want more ability to be local and not have to drive all over the place they want to have deeper relationships with their friends um, they want to come together and dance and play music and learn new skills and you know read new things and write poetry and learn how like learn what the heck poetry even means and you know learn their histories and you know, learn about their ancestors and do shamanic journeying and, you know, try to experience. It's kind of hard when you're you working know? three jobs and you're traumatized and you're disconnected. Yeah, what do you do for the people that have no idea? Like, I don't know. Let's say, for example, someone. Okay, this is a better thing because I don't think anybody's going to accidentally listen this far. Although maybe there's somebody going, I'm just going to listen to a whole bunch of word salad and then I don't I'm, hope there's something there. And I think I did that for a while. There was a time where the only thing I'd ever heard outside the normal story of the world uh was Eckhart Tolle's book and this was many many years ago and I remember hearing it I listened to it because he narrates it and I'm like I have no idea what the heck this guy's talking about but it sounds different than all the other stuff and I feel somewhat calm it was one of those things where like I felt something different and I had no idea what it just sounded like presence in the now and the now and the presence and feel into your body <laughs> pain bodied no don't do that don't even judge yourself for doing that you know just I I'm butchering it but I would listen to it. I listened to The Power of Now a hundred times probably. And it's like a seven or eight hour book. And same thing with A New Earth and all of these things. I shared the same birthday with Eckhart Tolle I found out many <laughs> cool. years later. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little bit younger than him, uh, but there we go. So let's say, for example, somebody's listening to this and they have people in their lives because I have people like this too. I mean, pretty much everyone that's in my life prior to five years ago is fits this category where, you know, they don't even know that they want to connect with people or grow produce or work in a garden or spend time in nature. They think that they're totally stoked with the new series on Netflix and making more moolah than everybody else and getting ahead of everyone. And, you know, their, their investment portfolio is outperforming everyone else. And, you know, they feel totally, they're not totally stoked, but they don't even have anything to compare it with. So like relative to how they were poor before, they're stoked to have this, 
And then this other thing just looks super alien, like a bunch of hippies, you know, running around with patchouli or something, you know, because a lot of people think that's, you know, they get really confused. You've run this ecstatic dancing and you have this finance company, you work with taxes and you work with student loans and you work with, you know, uh, psychological things and trauma healing. And now you have a podcast, like what the, and then Michael's running for mayor and he's, you know, running a permaculture. It just doesn't make sense. Cause again, we're at this almost, I think this reemergence of Renaissance or this Greek antiquity, maybe like where I've been blessed enough to, uh, and a lot of it was a gift. I don't know how the heck I got here. I could go into it, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it happened suddenly. Well, we, what we do t- we tell we, to somebody that has friends that just feel here's miserable? A, here's a thought. So we, yeah. we talk about this uh, container, this idea, this business of, of sacred finance, right? And so many of the clients that we work with with student loan tutor are finding that okay, if if the if the way that capitalism, the way that bureaucracy, the way that laws have progressed have allowed this to exist, where I don't have to just fall into the trap of the penalties and all the overpaying and all that and I get freed up, then where else in my life is this hidden abundance that could be provided if I was willing to face uh, the the rules of the game and and navigate it with people that actually have my best um, intentions in mind? However you determine that is is, is something else. But I feel like one of your Mm. best success stories in a way, Zach, like this idea of sacred finance has blessed my life immeasurably. Okay, so I currently manage your tutor department. Yeah. Um, everybody that comes through Student Loan Tutor gets this process that ensures that they are not overpaying on their student loans. And in many cases, they get $0 payments and may never even pay a dime towards their loans again, depending on the kind of professions. And yeah, it's a total mind screw. It's, it's a totally like you crazy, came right? in with student loans. So you have to just kind of like believe that yeah. for a second yeah. that it's possible yeah. and like we can show that. But my, my point is that three years ago, you know, I had just come off of a six-month apprenticeship at a permaculture farm with my wife living in, a, uh, in, in, a, in an RV uh, and taking care of uh, pastured cattle and chickens and greenhouses and clean air and clean water and this like desire to live in harmony with nature. And I had never, um, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of had the silver tongue in my life. I've worked certain kinds of jobs. I'm a good communicator and I'm, I'm blessed with that. Um, but I never thought I would ever find a job again where I could in good conscience and in right livelihood bless the lives of others and also live a lifestyle. Like I get to do these consultations from my home. I can do them from the road. I can do them from the Hawaii. office, our whole, from Hawaii. You know, we're <laughs> yeah. going to be able to visit Hawaii this, this, this winter and still be able to do the good work that's blessing lives. And so, you know, by facing uh, my financial shadow and my demons, I've been able to unlock whole new levels of abundance and and energy and momentum for the community and for myself and my family that I never would have experienced had I not run into you and this this container of student loan tutor and sacred finance. And so I, I bring that up to say that there are, when, when your heart is set and attuned to serving life, whatever story or idea that you have for that, something in the universe really seems to come up and root for you. And I guess that can sound hippie, that can sound patchouli. I know what you mean. um, I'm trying to say, once you say, I am going to ground and make my intention to serve others and bring the greatest level of health and beauty to myself and my community, people come out of the woodwork like crazy. I mean, so many people are hearing this song. Synchronicity comes into play. Yeah, synchronicity that mm -hmm. could take five years to try to plan it, all day, every day for five years will happen in a synchronistic accident. You know, I mean, synchronicity is the opposite of an accident. It, it, there, it's like divinely inspired moment. In Greek, there's a word for it. There's uh, chronos, which is time as a clock, time is measure. And then there's kairos, and that's the right time, something being the right time. And you run into a lot more of these things happening at the right time. 
which is beautiful. And I think that's why it's the right time for someone like me to run for something absurd like county mayor in Salt Lake. And as wild as that is, I mean, I've got to have this opportunity to speak for the valley because this new story, this idea of being able to serve life and find abundance within it, to build community together, to focus on healing our trauma so we can actually come together and make beautiful things happen, to to address the fact that our lower and middle class people are having all of their financial resources just systemically vacuumed out of our existence, our property opportunities, our assets, all of those opportunities are kind of systemically being drained by systems you know very well about and and we need to get to the the ability to be able to grow food for one another and 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 learn the skills that our communities have within them um, to create this more beautiful world and you know we could let it simmer for another couple years four years ten years twelve years but I feel like we're at a breaking point I feel like the world is asking for people on all front lines whether it's politics financial corporate non you know grassroots nonprofits whatever it is we need to be present and and speaking for life at this time and get our own egos and our own like idea of separation out of it and say how do we actually bring this and ground this in i think there's an important element to this because see it does take money unfortunately because so many of the realms of the world have been converted into things that require money in order to attain them and in order to attain these things we need to have them just to survive for example like if you live in utah you're gonna have a hard go if you don't have a home and if you don't have a home, then there's a whole bunch of things that go with that. You know, even if you have a pretty nice van, you know, it's like you got to find a place to shower. You got to do all these things. And a lot of people in our, you know, in the larger, you know, quote unquote, I call it conscious community, people that are at least striving to say, I don't really know. Like, I, I just, I don't believe this other stuff. And they fall into oftentimes other dogmatic belief systems that I see as being very similar to the belief system. You just fall into that because it's so conditioned, this monotheistic mythology of uh, good and evil and uh, which side am I on? And they kind of jump off. Where am I going with this? Is that there's this idea of sufficiency. I borrow that from the author Lynn Twist who helps with the Hunger Project and the Pachamama Alliance. She's raised hundreds of millions of dollars for nonprofits to, to basically end hunger worldwide because there's no reason that there should be a hunger problem. There's not a food problem. There's a distribution problem. There's a greed problem. There's an accumulation problem. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lack of local agriculture, which then, you know, perpetuates this problem. So I think sufficiency is important. And just recently, Michael, you brought out Robin Wall Kimmerer here to Salt Lake City. And she did a talk here at the Permaculture Guild where we're actually in, like, like actually she was actually <laughs> did a talk probably sitting right where I'm sitting. And then she also spoke at the library and in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, she talked about, which we're actually going to have her on the podcast, Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist podcast, and she was just on yours. She talks about something called the Wendigo spirit. And the Wendigo spirit uh, is, and I might butcher this a little bit, but I'm doing it to the best of my memory and my best of my recollection, is that there's this spirit that exists in the snow uh, for her people, which are the Potawatomi people. Uh, and it's this gigantic white beast that's, you know, really tall, seven foot, eight foot tall. And uh, it's running around like mad in the middle of the night and day, nonstop, trying to eat whatever it can. And anything it runs into, anything it sees, it will eat. And it, if you see it, you'll be able to recognize it, not only because it's so big and white and ravenous and, av- and, and av- avaricious, is it is also so hungry that it's eaten its own lips off. 
And I think a lot of people, due to their lack of understanding, rightfully so, because the system is rigged, they don't understand how much they're supposed to save for taxes or what tax deductions there are or what, you know, why they don't own a house and why they have to buy it and how much they have to pay for it. Is it three times over? Do they insure the second mortgage? If they got a second mortgage, what the heck is a second mortgage? What is property tax? It, it, just mm. at the end of the day, there's just not much money left over and they hope maybe if they quote unquote invest it, then it will return more money to them. And then so people make what's called a heuristic, which is a they ask themselves a simpler question to a very complex problem because it's overly complex. And they come up with, it is best to just accumulate as much as I can anytime I can get there. But the minute they do that, they instantly become in competition with everyone else. So I think the most important key, the first key to this liberation mm -hmm. from this, like you could feel it. It's that anxiety right in the solar plex that pulls you. It's just pulling, keeps you in motion because you're scared to even stop because man, I got to get back on. It's like you're on a treadmill. You're like living on the ground of a treadmill. And anytime you get out of your bed, the treadmill is just going mm. and you're just, you've got to keep moving. If you're not, you could feel like the moving is happening without you there. And, and there's a term for that and it's called sufficiency. And I borrowed this again from Lynn Twist. And it's this idea of knowing how much it is that you need for what it is that you really want. And this doesn't mean you sit down for, you know, two days or go to a workshop, or maybe it does mean that, I don't know. But it's a constant inquiry of like, what is it that I really, what am I moving towards right now? Like, like what, what sounds cool? Like does dancing sober sound cool to you? Does gardening sound so, cool? Does reading a book, poetry, what calls to your heart right now that you're not doing? So if I could, uh, yeah. something that really resonates a lot in the work we do with student loan tutor and our clients, a lot of them are self-employed business owners, right? And there's this idea of like, we, we want to fit into this program that's kind of been um, put on us of let's just grow and grow and grow and accumulate as much as, as possible. It kind of seems to be the nature of corporations and business in general. No 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 harm in, in, in necessarily falling into what's given to us, good. right? I right. mean, it's a moral good in the sense that your colleagues give you kudos. You can get kudos sure, on Facebook, sure. lots of thumbs up, lots of followers, lots of reviews, right? And, and, I, don't, and I don't know the answer to everything, yeah. of course, but what, what really resonated with me and seems to with our clients is this idea that, you know, there was a study that came out that said if you earn up to uh, 70000 a year, whatever that benchmark happens to be for society right now, that you are, um, there, there are economic reasons to get depressed. Like you might not be able to do all the healing workshops that you want or eat the best food um, or have the opportunities that really feed your soul and, and create the lifestyle for your family that you want but anything above 70,000 is showing absolutely zero increase in happiness or satisfaction across the board which is kind of this crazy idea and the more that we explore it as a company and as our efforts um, increase in, in kind of learning the tax side of things all these different areas to liberate people we want that same thing for student loan tutor and for sacred finance is this idea that let's reach these sufficiency points for our community and then let's pool our resources and actually allow the flow of abundance to make an actual beautiful impact for the communities that were around and I love that we're living that ourselves and also starting to provide as much as we can a roadmap for for others to to see this concept of sufficiency that you're bringing up so that whole thing really excites me a lot it's almost like I picture somebody in a car and right now the only idea that they have when they get in the car is to drive faster they don't really have like any tachometer, speedometer, oil gauges, air pressure. It's like the opposite of a, a smart car giving you feedback. It's just, mm. I've got to go ahead. Ahead is good. More is better, you know, and it's better in every, and again, it's better in every way. Um, so I think that that's completely not true because uh, it's one element of life. Money is one element of life. And I could see why people get con confused money 
with all the other elements of life, especially if they didn't grow up with a lot of money. It's almost like if you didn't grow up with the money, you're almost even more addicted to it because you remember what it was like to not have it. I mean, even genetically or epigenetically, they've done studies from, I don't even know who's done the studies, which scientists, but again, please don't lose me in the pedantic details, is that people that came from concentration camps and uh, the Irish potato starvation, uh, their Dep- genetic depression. Their, yeah, mm-hmm. their, their genetics have shifted to where now they might put on a bunch of weight with relatively lower calories. And I think the same thing comes with money. And that happened with me. I mean, I came from living uh, in the projects and ghetto of a, a place near Oakland, which people are less familiar with. And we didn't have a lot. I actually had more than most where I was at because I had some video games and comic books. And uh, most people like had two pairs of clothes and stuff. And you know, we ate 69 cent tacos and, you know, healthy food was macaroni and cheese. You know, that was a healthy food. I didn't drink water till I was 25. I just didn't like water. It tasted like whatever the sponge touched before it. And uh, the minute I figured out, I, I thought I had figured out this huge eureka. Money is the answer. And I, I mean, where I grew up in the hood was like, you got to hustle, man. Like being a hustler, like it wasn't even about, you didn't even have to be wealthy yet. As long as you were a hustler, it was it was worth it, you know, and and so I just hustled. I just out hustled most other people, which again is out competing, and again is kind of a sense of ruthlessness in a way, uh, intellectual ruthlessness. I wasn't like this big dude with a you know AK forty seven. I just I used cunning, I guess, and uh, and strategy, you know. But there was a limit to that. I made millions of dollars and I lost it all multiple times over again. And then, and the last time I realized that there was a part of my soul causing me to lose, I mean, it wasn't due to any huge form of irresponsibility. It's like doing everything right, being assured against everything. And then, you know, you didn't plan on that banana peel being there, but that takes the whole thing out. I even came up with a name for it called line 36 B because invariably it didn't matter how much money I made. Somehow I would make the wrong hire that would then get access to some computer Mm -hmm. that then would delete something that then would cause, you know. This whole domino effect, and I and I really want to speak to the soul in this, and I think that if someone tunes into whatever their their understanding of a soul is, the soul is calling you. It is the cry of the world, and if you're suffering, that there, that is the cry, and try to go to places where your soul feels appeased, mm. and it's a subtle feeling, and it takes some time. Something's different uh, for you this time around. I think maybe that idea of being in alignment with life. Um, on behalf of yourself and family and community. And that's why it's such an honor to work with you in so many capacities here in the communities of Salt Lake City and with this uh, potentially global audience that you're creating. I mean, you're, you've got some incredible interviews lined up. Some of my heroes, right? I mean, you just had the Charles Eisenstein podcast. You're going to be on with Michael Mead Michael here Mead on soon. Halloween, of all things. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So there's some beautiful, holiday, some beautiful opportunities. Sure. And I'm just praying, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm intending, I'm manifesting, I'm whatever language you want, um, that we're able to get this idea of a more beautiful world, a story, and, and actions that come with accepting that story, and, and to use this, this potential of humanity as we're in alignment with that, and use these technologies and these connectivities to um, really shift the shift the flow of, of this river in a way that actually benefits even those that are controlling the flow of the river. Yeah, That's the totally. thing that gets me. Like yeah. you can't argue with 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 the good sense of clean air, clean water, healthy soils, um, connected, healthy communities. I mean, these are just things that like well, duh. And I think we need to get 
the financial and the business and the nonprofit and the community energies in alignment with that and, and see what blessings come. Yeah. From eventually it, so. the music of beauty will get so loud that it starts to pull at the hearts like of the people that are really, really wounded and, uh, and hopefully their walls come down and they could join in the symphony of what we're speaking about today. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Michael, for being on the show. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you.